So, if you have your Bible, please turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. I'm going to read the entire chapter, 13 verses this morning, though our text will be but a small portion of Isaiah 55. And please note, this is the Word of God. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly Pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it Bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. May God bless the reading of his penetrating, even scandalizing word. Pray with me. Father, we are here, I hope, with some degree of expectancy. Lord, we we never want to approach your throne in an entirely casual way. Lord, we, we want to come expecting something from your hand. You are the giver of good gifts. You you are the God who says, how much more will I give? 
And Lord, it's to you that we look. Bless the proclamation of your word for the sake of your son. Be glorified here today and give your people understanding according to the scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this, dear ones, is one of the great chapters of the Old Testament. Memorable on multiple fronts. I I can't imagine that any here that have been reading their Bible for any amount of time are surprised when they come to Isaiah 55. I hope that, that that is familiar waters for you. Of course, the chapter opens with that great and repetitive call to come. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. The language in the chapter is so excessive, so full of promises, rich promises. And thus, many throughout church history have memorized this chapter or portions of this great chapter. Maybe you today have memorized portions of this great chapter, verses like, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's good news. That's worth memorizing, church. Or, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. After all, this great chapter from beginning to end is spoken in the first person singular. And thus, I read Isaiah 55. You should be reading Isaiah 55 as God's own gospel invitation being proclaimed through his prophet. This is God's sermon. This, this may rank as one of the top evangelistic sermons or invitations of all time. This is Isaiah 55. And, and we see how a chapter like this so influenced the Lord Jesus Christ, how, how it shaped his own speech and evangelism. You remember the encounter with the woman at the well. John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. What does Jesus say to her in that encounter? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He was pointing to the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Do you see the connection, Isaiah 55 to John 4? This chapter, Isaiah 55, is even echoed in the closing chapter of the New Testament, Revelation 22. And it's there that we read the Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It seems like this great chapter has had quite the ripple effect throughout the pages of our New Testament. Now think briefly with me on the context out of which this great chapter comes to us. Context is so critical. 
This portion of Isaiah sits on the heels of the fourth and final servant song. That fourth and final servant song is located in our Bibles in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and it culminates with the closing verse of Isaiah 53. The song begins in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's the opening stanza of this fourth and final servant song. And yet, this servant who will be exalted must first be crushed. And then we enter in, don't we, to chapter 53, the great chapter of Isaiah 53. This servant has a mission to accomplish, and that mission is the redemption of his people. And so we come in to the floodwaters of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Wow, we know the rest of the story of Isaiah 53, don't we? God the Father voluntarily puts His Son down so that He might lift up a people for Himself. God the Son voluntarily bears the curse due to His people that we men, women, in Christ could then live. And as soon as this fourth and final servant song concludes, closing verse of Isaiah 53, we turn the page to Isaiah 54, and we see God suddenly urging His people to sing. Because of what this servant has accomplished, the church now has every reason under heaven to sing, to cry aloud. Verse 1, seeing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. And the tidal wave of Isaiah 54 rushes on. In that fast-paced chapter, God illustrates the power of the gospel on a grand scale. And He does so by pointing to these three different scenarios, these three great reversals. The barren one's womb will come to life and her descendants will fill the nations. That's the power of the gospel. Or this second scenario, you have an ashamed widow, a castaway, who is now gathered by her husband. The Lord God Almighty Himself is her husband and He will lavish compassion on her. And then you move right into the third scenario. This picture of a tent, a a small dwelling, a desolated city. It's going to be rebuilt into a beautiful, established city. A city of righteousness. And these, every one of them, are reasons to shout for joy. Reasons to sing loudly. And thus the stage is set for Isaiah 55, what follows? 
In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant has accomplished redemption once and for all. In Isaiah 54, the fruit of God's gracious redemption is seen in these glorious reversals. Reading between the lines of those two great chapters, it's like we're watching the acorn of a live oak sprout into the greatest tree the world has ever known. And then we come to the opening of Isaiah 55, this call to worship. And it pictures for us God Almighty Himself, His proclamation, and He's bringing in the sheaves. His kingdom is coming. It is expanding to the four corners of the earth. The gospel feast is hot and ready. The cups on the table are overflowing with drink. And God says, come, everyone, come and dine. God's Gospel invitation. So, now that we see the flow of God's thought leading us to our text today, I want to focus in on one small piece of God's sermon to the world. I wanted you to have the context on a macro level. And now we're going to dig in within the context on a more micro level. Look with me at our text, verses 8 and 9. I trust these are very familiar verses to many of you. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I think to say this is a well-known couple of verses would be an understatement. Many of you here today could likely recite that text with little to no trouble. It's frequently cited in conversations, isn't it? Conversations involving hard providences or confusing circumstances, uh, even in deep moments of grief, to where a brother comes and puts his arm around a brother and he says, we can just be encouraged. God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. Be comforted, dear brother. God's ways are not like our ways. That is the common usage and understanding of this verse. And I imagine then that the citation of these two verses have indeed been used of God to comfort many thousands of believers throughout church history. And I rejoice in that. Yet, I wonder if these verses are often actually understood in their proper context. While I hope every single one of you have this big picture of God where this chapter sits in Isaiah, the view of God it gives us. While I hope each of you exalt in the wisdom of God and the glorious thought of His thoughts, I just want to maybe correct a bit of a misunderstanding when it comes to the context in which these two verses sit. Because there's simply something more here 
than God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts, his wisdom being more than our wisdom, his ways being so far exalted above our ways. There's a specificity in the context that must be identified. If the big picture of context in chapter 55 is God's gospel invitation to the world, if it sits on the heels of the suffering servant's redemptive work, what then is the immediate context? And we need to ask this question because the first word in the opening verse of our text this morning is this little three-letter word, for. And any time we see that word, maybe Ryan and others have said this before, we need to ask, what is that for, therefore? What is it communicating? Because that single word is always an indicator that what follows that word is directly and immediately tied to what precedes that word. And so we read in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What thoughts, Lord? Why are you talking about your thoughts and your ways, Lord? What thoughts? What ways? It is said that humans think between 15,000 and 50,000 thoughts daily. Is is verses 8 and 9 then simply magnifying God's wisdom and mind because he thinks more thoughts than we do, even the accumulated thoughts of all the billions on the face of the planet? Is that what this verse is saying? That his thoughts are somehow more quantitatively or maybe more qualitatively than our thoughts? I think every one of us would hearken unto that. Indeed, God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Is that the immediate context though? Is that how God would have us answer the question, what thoughts, Lord? What ways, Lord? Well, the four is there for a reason. And it's connecting us to the text that comes before it. Read with me verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Here it is, dear ones. What thoughts, Lord, what ways are higher than my ways? For he will abundantly pardon. It it could be read there at the end of verse 7, for He will multiply forgivenesses. That's how His thoughts aren't like our thoughts. Church, that's how His ways aren't like your ways and my ways. And this is glorious. This is the way God is. 
it isn't this way with us. We have to admit, we are a people that aren't very eager to forgive offenses. I'm not saying we don't at times. I am saying we're not eager to do it. We say we are at times, of course, and in Christ we certainly long to be that way, increasingly eager to forgive, quick to forgive. But by nature, we aren't those who are quick to forgive. When someone offends us, because we think so highly of ourselves, we immediately get to setting demands and expectations on that offending party that they must then meet if we are going to actually extend forgiveness. We think to ourselves, boy, that apology better be real if he wants me to forgive him. That that offender better be sincere when they come with their apology. They better be humble. The fact is, from birth, we are not those who yearn to forgive. And yet, here is this grand picture of Almighty who is eager, ready, and entirely willing to forgive. I want this truth, this single truth, to explode in your hearts and minds this morning. The good kind of explosion, of course. I want you to see God as He is. We need to see God as He is. According to Nehemiah in the ninth chapter, He is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Did you hear that? He is a God ready to forgive. This is the God of the Bible. The Christian and the non-Christian need to hear this today loud and clear. God is a God who abundantly pardons. He is a God ready to forgive. And we need to hear this because we often fall into the trap of thinking one of two things. Either, one, our sins are too great for God to forgive. Or, two, that God is simply unwilling to forgive us. This text blasts all such notions as nonsense and foolishness. And this is where I want to begin to dig in this morning. Two parts to the remainder of this message. Number one, men don't believe they can be forgiven. It's pretty straightforward. Men don't believe they can be forgiven. And then in the second part of the sermon, we will consider the reality that God is the joyful forgiver. It's true. So many, even those among us today, right here, right now, don't really, don't fully, don't wholeheartedly believe that God forgives their sins. And it's to you that I specially want to speak to today. And I believe it's most of you that I'm speaking to today. We, we don't possess the confidence that we saw in the German reformer Martin Luther, who, who tells of this story to where the devil came to him 
And, and the devil came with this long, extensive scroll in his hand. And, and the scroll, as he unrolled it, and Luther said it stretched for miles and miles and miles, had sin after sin after sin of Martin Luther's documented there on the scroll. Well, Luther looked at it, and he said to the devil, is that all you've got? Is that all of them? And the devil actually went away. This is the story he tells. And he comes back sometime later, and he's got that scroll. It's longer now. The devil had taken time, he had done his homework, he came back, and the scroll is even longer. The list of Martin Luther's sins is even longer. And Luther looked him in the face and he said, is that all? Are you certain you got every single one of them? Well, a third time, the devil goes, he returns now. A third time to confront Luther with this long scroll. Luther said of that scroll, it seemed to stretch around the earth. And Luther said, give me that scroll. And he took a pen in his hand. And at the very bottom of that list, he wrote, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Now there may be some among us that have wholeheartedly embraced that kind of mercy. Maybe. But even mature Christians can grow in their embrace of this single gospel truth. And yet there are others among us right here, right now, and and you're sitting there and and you think God's not like that. He, He can't forgive so freely, so fully. The blood of Jesus can't wash away all my sins. Indeed, there are those that see that kind of radical forgiveness as impossible. God would never do that, Brother Lee. Or God could never do that. So many people wrongly view Christ as coming to save saints when instead He came to save sinners. One person says as an objection, oh, Brother Lee, you just don't understand. My sins are too big for God to forgive. I mean, he he might be able to forgive them, but why on earth, due to their horrific nature, why on earth would he forgive them? It would be disgusting, embarrassing, appalling, disgusting to have the sinful histories of just us here today documented and then read aloud. There there would be those among us that would run out of the back of this auditorium. What you and I have done is entirely gross and evil and shameful. There are things we don't want anybody else to know about us. I've been married 23 years this May. There are things... I have not told my wife about me. And yet, what has God said? All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven.
Matthew 12, 31. Yes, this is what God says. He will abundantly pardon all kinds of sin. Small sins and big sins. Why? Because of the suffering servant's sacrifice. That's why. That's why all your sins can be forgiven. That's why they can all be washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Today, this very moment, right here and now. But another says, not, not only are my sins horrific and big, but there are so many. And I have returned to that sin, those sins, again and again and again. They are repeated sins. My whole life has been lived. How can God then forgive me when all I have done year after year after year is pursue these sinful things? Our own thought life alone can condemn us here. Ask yourself, are jealous thoughts yet conquered? Are angry thoughts constantly put down? Are selfish thoughts barred from entry? Are lustful thoughts never entertained? Sin upon sin upon sin. But dear ones, Christ died for habitual sins. His blood cleanses from repeated violations as much as single solitary instances of sin. And then another speaks up and says, but my sins are willful sins. I chose them. I did that thing. I wanted that sin. But my sins, one says, are religious in nature, like Balaam or like Demas. My sins have been of that antichrist spirit, skepticism, atheism, blasphemy. But my sins have hurt others. My sins have destroyed lives. My sins cost me my marriage, my relationship with my children. For he will abundantly pardon. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Men have thousands upon thousands of unbelieving excuses as to why their sin is too big or why God is too small to forgive. And that is why we need Bible texts like this one in Isaiah 55. You and I are prone to ugly, Belief. That is most likely the most often repeated sin in our lives. And yet here, God sets this liberating reality before us. He isn't stingy with pardon. He will receive you in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, brethren, there are 10,000 charms. Or as Saint penned in his hymn, Great God of Wonders, he wrote, Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who hath grace so rich and free? The habitual liar can come to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and if he will believe upon him and turn from his sin, that liar will be transformed into a lover of truth because 
lives and only because God stands ready to multiply forgivenesses to such a sinner. On and on we could go. The drug dealer, the adulterer, the husband who abandoned his wife and children. On and on we could go. All varieties of sinners. Do you see this? Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon my thoughts. God says, are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. This is what is true of God. And this is what can be enjoyed by you and me today. So while men are treading water in the pond of unbelief, looking here and there for a remedy, everywhere but where they need to look, the Lord Jesus Christ, they're looking for a way out. God offering a sea of forgiveness to that sinner. Real, true, full forgiveness. So much so that as Micah writes, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, God, into the depths of the sea. All our sins. Men struggle to believe this. But it isn't because it's not true. The problem is it sounds too good to be true. But that is the nature, dear church, of the scandalous gospel I proclaim, your pastors proclaim. That is the nature of the gospel. It sounds too good to be true, but it's true. God freely forgives every turning sinner. Salvation is free. We sing with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Men don't want to believe that God can forgive them. But He can. And He does. If you're in Christ, He has. Now for the second matter, and we'll wrap up. God's thoughts of grace are way above yours. Way. Double underline it. Way above yours. Because again, we're, we're slow to forgive. We're not running in the direction of forgiveness. Often we're backing up from it. We, we, we hesitate so often to show grace. After all, we don't want to be enabling that person just to continue in their sin. We need to be strong with them. Hard love. Oh, we delight in receiving mercy, but we don't delight in showing it. According to Micah 7, God delights in showing steadfast love and mercy. You see, because of what Jesus the suffering servant accomplished on Calvary's cross. The forgiveness of sins can now be offered fully and freely to any sinner who will come. You aren't paying anything. The debt has already been paid by Jesus. You aren't cooking the gospel feast. The feast is prepared and the table is set. Please, please 
don't judge God's heart by your own heart. Please stop that. The God of the Bible isn't like you and me. We are like Him, yes, created in His image, and yet this is also true. He is not like us. His ways are infinitely higher than your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, you measure that and get back to me. So are my ways higher than your ways. When you and I forgive, it doesn't always last, does it? Have you ever thought you had really forgiven somebody and then they offend you one more time? And you suddenly realized, hmm, maybe I didn't quite forgive them last time. When, when we're repeatedly offended, our forgiveness begins to run out of gas. And before long, it's stranded on the highway somewhere and we can't even find it. Oh, we thought we had forgiven so-and-so. Maybe you recall the Apostle Peter's thoughts on forgiveness. In Matthew's Gospel, the 18th chapter, Peter comes up to the Lord Jesus and he says, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times seven? Excuse me, as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. It's as though Peter thought he was being bold with grace. If this guy offends me, you, you, you want me, Lord, to forgive him seven times? Seven times? Yeah, I'll show Jesus how spiritual I am when I would be willing to forgive that many offenses. Peter's heart isn't like the heart of Jesus, dear ones. And thus we see Jesus say, no, Peter, not seven times. Seventy-seven times. In reality, Jesus was saying, no, Peter, 77 times 77 times 77 times 77. I think you get the point. God never comes to the end of His pardoning mercy. That storehouse is never, ever depleted. You remember in Genesis, the storehouses of grain that Joseph had prepared before the famine came to Egypt? Yeah, they don't even compare to the far, exceedingly far greater storehouses of God's mercy for sinners. You simply cannot. No, the whole world of sin will absolutely never ever exhaust the multiplied forgivenesses of God through Jesus Christ. It can't and won't ever happen. Once again, I say that's why a chapter like this is so necessary. Remember, this is God's invitation to you, both sinner and saint. It is God's invitation to you. Nobody is twisting God's hand to show anybody mercy. He just freely offers it. Mercy is His name. There's a story. One of many stories, I'm sure. Of how this chapter has been used throughout the history of the church. 
And in this case, how it was used to help one big sinner one day. There was a hardened criminal. He had been imprisoned with a very long sentence. And even in prison, he continued to be such a violent man. So violent that the prison warden had him transferred where he was in a cell all by himself, night and day, around the clock. And the prison chaplain who, who had come to this man and tried again and again and again to bring him to repentance and faith in Christ, he was making no progress. Nothing seemed to have any effect on this hardened man. And then one day, the chaplain came once more And he read to him from Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. the man responded. I never heard such a thing. Can God make a covenant with a wretch like me? It would break my heart. And dear ones, it did break his heart. And that very day, Hearing that solitary scripture, God liberated this imprisoned man sitting there in solitary confinement. And he was a new man in Christ Jesus. He was a forgiven man that day forward. So please hear me as we come to a close. From now on, when you read these two verses, verses 8 and 9, don't merely read them as exalting the They do that. But read them in their context and see them exalting with loud praises the mercy and forgiveness of God. He will abundantly pardon. This text alone is sufficient to prove to any sinner that they are simply mistaken in their thinking that God wouldn't or couldn't forgive them. Beware of measuring God's grace by your own thoughts, sinner and church alike. Though this sounds too good to be true, it is true. Gospel truth. God's word is true. This is not too good to be true. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on these verses, said, You have measured God's corn with your own bushel. He is greater at forgiving than you've ever dreamed. Oh, He is a great forgiver. Wonderful is God in every position which He assumes. 
But when He takes to pardoning through the bleeding sacrifice, there He is glorious indeed. Come to the Lord for abundant pardon today, dear sinner, dear saint. It is not a mere sip from the cup God gives. It is not the crust of the bread He will hand you. No, God's gospel is nothing like a soup kitchen. It is a kingdom of feasting. Come to the one who multiplies forgivenesses. You can't out-sin His mercy. Won't you come? Won't you come? Be embraced today by God's overwhelming love and outrageous mercy. Be embraced today. Let's pray. Father, what more can we say? You have said it. You have put your name on the line. You have promised these things. The God who cannot lie has spoken. O Lord, that you would make us to believe these things. That you would shape us in this truth. That no matter how many times we fall or how big we fall, that we would come running to our God who is ready to forgive. Thank You, Lord, for abundant mercy. Thank You, Lord, for rich promises. Thank You for multiplied forgivenesses. In Jesus' name, Amen.